We started back in January, February uh, in Ephesians and uh, we're revisiting it, uh, picking up. Uh, We started last week again, chapter 3, and here we are, verses 14 to 21. Let me pray for us as we come to look at the Bible. We've sung already in our service, Heavenly Father, transform, renew and change me that I might be a living sacrifice. We ask for that transforming work to be happening in us through your word, by the power of your spirit and to your praise and glory. Amen. So Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 to 21. Uh, A friend of mine was made uh, a curate in a church a long, long away from here and well over a decade ago, so you won't know where it is, and it's important that you don't. You see, he and his wife were very excited to be going to work at this particular church, but they had no idea what they were walking into. When they began to settle in, they came to realise they joined a church family that, well, was at each other's throats. The way the church family spoke to each other was, at times, quite appalling. Often they were impatient, unkind, and uh, harsh with each other. They wrote letters to each other that were aggressive and, and, uh, frankly, at times, nasty. The whole experience was very distressing, as you can imagine. It was a a terrible thing to be part of a church like that, and indeed would be a terrible thing to be part of any church like that. Uh, For three reasons, it was simply unpleasant to be around these people. Uh, Secondly, they were uh, an awful example to the community around them did nothing for Christian witness. And thirdly, their actions denied the power of God in the heavenly realms. I wonder if you've ever thought about that before. Well, I'm sure you did if you were here last week. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 10 of Ephesians, last week's passage, and Andrew took us through this. Chapter 3, verse 10. God's intent was that now, through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. It is a remarkable verse. It tells us how important the church is. Do you see it there, chapter 3, verse 10? It is God's intention that through the church, the powers and authorities in the heavenly realms should see the greatness of God's wisdom. Now imagine it right now. The powers and authorities in the heavenly realms, that part of the creation that is unseen but is no less real for that. We don't see it but it's still very real. And that which is all around us, the demons, the spiritual forces of evil, the powers of this dark world, the unseen world is as we sit, looking at us, watching our every move here at Christchurch Forward to see how we live. And when we live out the gospel, they are wowed by it. Wowed not by us, but by the awesome power and wisdom of God. You see, that is how important the church is. The church is not a hobby of God's. It's not a little sideline. It's not as if God has a universe to run, global terrorism and and, and war zones to calm, a world blighted by human mismanagement and that the church is the little project he turns to when he has a bit of spare time on a wet Sunday afternoon. That is not it at all. No, no, the church is at the very heart and centre of God's plans and activities for his world. Indeed, chapter 3, verse 10, the church is where we see how great God is, or at least it should be. You see, as we live together, as we should, in the ways that we should, 
the powers and authorities in the heavenly realms marvel that God can bring together sinful men and women to live together in unity. They marvel that God can unite people so that they treat each other properly and love each other as they should and bear each other, bear with each other in patient love. When that happens, they see something that is out of this world because that simply doesn't happen in the world. And when that happens, the powers and authorities in the heavenly realms marvel at the power and wisdom of Almighty God. Now that is why Paul prays as he does here in verses 14 to 21. This is a prayer that we should live as we should, that we should become more and more the people that we should be. And let me show you where it's leading on to. Just look at chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. This is where this is going. This is what this prayer is all about, that we may live, chapter 4, verse 2, that we may be completely humble and gentle, we be patient, bearing with one, one another in love, and make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. How terrible it is when the Christian church, in the Christian church, People are rude and impatient and sharp with others. How terrible it is when we're not gentle and when we act in ways that breaks the unity of the Spirit that the Holy Spirit himself has brought. For when we live like that, we are denying the work of the Gospel and the power of God. And you know what that does? It dishonours his name in the heavenly realms. Because in the heavenly realms, they look on and they say, well, God isn't that powerful because he hasn't done very, anything very spectacular in his church, has he? Now that's what this prayer is all about. Chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. For this reason. Now actually Paul had said exactly the same thing back in chapter 3, verse 1. Do you see? For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, and it seems that at the beginning of chapter 3 Paul was about to pen the prayer that we're going to look at in verses 14 to 21. But at the beginning of the chapter, just as he was about to write these words, he suddenly thought of something else that he needed to add in verses 2 to 13. And so the for this reason of verse 14 refers back to chapters 1 and 2. Now you'll be pleased and I'm not going to try and expound the whole of chapters 1 and 2 to give us a context. I'm just going to pick out what I think is the salient point for us this morning. And that is the amazing fact that the gospel brings Jews and Gentiles together in one new community. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. Christ himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. See, that's what the gospel does. It is remarkable to see the gospel at work. The gospel that enables people who hate each other to love each other. The gospel that brings people together who were at each other's throats and makes them the best of friends. That is very powerful. My brother and I used to fight like cat and dog. Well, I know a lot of people would say that of their children. And there's all sorts of reasons why people overcome that. But let me tell you, even as adults, we fought like cat and dog. Now we are the greatest friends. Why? I know why. Because of the gospel. He was converted and I was converted and now we are best friends. The gospel did that. God does that. And it is a very powerful thing when it happens. Because we don't see that in the world. Not in that way. 
Now that's why Paul prays as he does in chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. Because only through the mighty power of God will this happen. And so Paul prays for power, for God's power to be at work in the church. See, power is the dominant word here. You'll see it there in verse 16. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power. It's there in verse 18. I'll read from verse 17. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power. And you'll see it in verse 20 as well. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. This then is a prayer for power, for the power of God to be at work in the church because we need all the power of God in order for us to live as we should and in order for us to relate to one another as we should. There are actually two prayers here and we'll look at them both. Firstly, the first prayer in verses 16 and 17 is a prayer that God would strengthen us with power through his spirit in our inner being. A a prayer that the Ephesian Christians would be strengthened through the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 16. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. In your inner spirit. Literally, in the inner man. What does it mean to be strengthened in the inner man? Well, Paul uses the same language. We don't need to turn it up, but you can look it up later if you want. Paul uses exactly the same language in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18, where he says that for the Christian, the inner man is being renewed day by day, while the outer man is wasting away. Now, I know that. Do you know that experience? I know that experience. The outer man wasting away. I know it every time I get up in the morning. The aches and the pains, the stiffening of the joints. You're saying to me, wait till you get my age. I know, but I'm already feeling it. I know it when I look in the mirror in the morning. It's not a pretty sight. And it doesn't matter what I do, I see when I look in the mirror that gravity wins, doesn't it? No matter what we do, we all end up with what a friend of mine calls a furniture problem, with our chest in our drawers. I mean, you know, it doesn't matter what you do, it's going to happen, isn't it? Outwardly, we are wasting away. But inwardly, if we're Christian, we should be being renewed day by day. It's what 2 Corinthians says. What we should be, becoming more like Christ. But listen, this is not automatic. Just because we're Christian. We've all met Christian people who, as they get older, are not renewed to become more like Christ, but become miserable old goats. Don't become more Christ-like at all, just become like everyone else. But when we do, well, it's a marvellous thing. I think I wrote about a lady called Kitty in the the church magazine some time ago. Let me tell you about Kitty. Wonderful woman. Uh, Kitty had a a remarkably hard life. She's dead now. I knew her from uh, two churches back. Uh, Her son died when he was in his 20s. She was a, a carer, cared for her husband who was blind through diabetes. Uh, But Kitty was amazing and, uh, you know, whenever I felt a bit down, I'd go on a pastoral visit to Kitty. She thought I was visiting her. She actually was doing pastoral work on me because, you see, whenever I went to see her, well, I felt uplifted. She was kind and thoughtful and patient, wonderful woman. Caroline, my wife, would say, I want to be like Kitty when I grow older. Now, you see, that happens through the mighty work of God's Spirit in our lives. That being renewed day by day in the inner being. 
And that's what this prayer is all about here. That through God's mighty power, in the domain of our inner being, our characters would be transformed. This is a prayer, that verse 17, Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Do you see it there? That's how we're changed, you see. When Christ, by his spirit, is dwelling in our hearts. Now let me stop here for a moment. Because if you've got your theological brain in gear, you might be saying at this point, hang on, doesn't the Holy Spirit come and live in the believer's life when they're converted? Well, if you're saying that, yes, they do. You're absolutely right. At Christianity Explore, just uh, on Tuesday, I was telling the people who were coming there, or some of them, that if you commit your life to Jesus, the moment you commit your life to Christ, the Holy Spirit will come and live in you. That happens at conversion. And Paul has already said that here in Ephesians. Just flip back to chapter 1, verse 13, if you will, so that you can see it uh, from the, uh, the pen of Paul. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 And you are also included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal. Here it is, the promised Holy Spirit. Yes, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in all real believers when they hear and believe the word of truth. So what is this then in chapter 3 verse 17? What is this prayer? Well, we know now it's not a prayer for the Spirit of Christ to come to believers That's already happened. But rather that Christ would take up residence in our hearts. Do you see what he says? The word here is a very strong word. The word dwell there in verse 17. Let me put it like this. When you buy a new house and you move in, you remember doing that? Gradually, as the years roll by, you change things by by decorating, repairing, building. You know, first it's changing the ghastly wallpaper that the previous owners put in the living room. How did they live with that? We've got to change that. And then it might be more adventurous projects, you know, knocking down walls, putting extensions in. I I can't do any of that stuff. I'm hopeless. I mean, I can put wallpaper up, but beyond that, I can't... get, Get a man in who does that. But we do it, don't we? And one day, after years of home improvements... You turn to your spouse and you say, you know, I really like it here. Everything we look at is the result of our hard work. This home is just as we want it. Don't you think that? Now, over time, you see, we stamp our ownership and our characters even on our home. From the first moment that we move in, it's ours. We live there. But eventually, over time, it reflects something of who we are. Now that is true of God. When we become Christians, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us. Christ by his Spirit is dwelling in us from the moment we become Christians. But he wants to change us. He starts doing little works here and there. He wants the fact that he's living in us to be seen so that when people look at us, they'll say, oh, I know who's living there. Some years ago, Caroline and I stayed in a in a friend's holiday cottage on the south coast. They'd given us the key, we drove down, found the address, put the key in the door, opened up, and as the door opened up and we walked in, we instantly knew we were in the right place. I mean, we knew we were in the right place because the key worked, but instantly we knew we were in the right place because we, we knew it was so... We said, this is so Howard and Cecilia. This is so... It's exactly, it was so tastefully decorated. It just looked as if it was their place. Now, when Jesus comes into our lives, he wants to do the same with us. So that when people look at us, they say, oh, that person, they're so Jesus. See, when Christ comes into our lives, he finds moral equivalents of of bad wallpaper, doesn't he? 
For me, the day after I became a Christian, I stopped swearing overnight. It's remarkable. It doesn't happen to everybody, but that's what happened to me. I think it was probably because I was working in the newspaper business and everybody in the newspaper business swore. I mean, terrible language. You go down to the print room and it wasn't as if every other word was a swear word. It's like every fourth or fifth word wasn't a swear word. Go into the advertising department, lovely girls on the telephone, selling advertising space, lovely language. Put the phone down, swears like a trooper. Go into, into the, where the journalists were sitting, into the, into the newsroom. And well, you'd think they had a good command of the English language, and they did, but they swear like the rest of them. And it was no different in the department that I was in, in the newspaper sales department. We were all the same. And instantly, my language changed. And I think it was God just showing others that I'd been changed. He did that by his spirit. I don't know what it was for you. That for me was 24 years ago, changing the wallpaper, if you like, the outward thing, the thing that everyone could see. Now in my life, there is serious rewiring going on, if I can put it that way. Much bigger job than changing the wallpaper. Now I'm challenged about the way I think, the motives I have, the things that drive me, the deepest things in my life. Not just cosmetic, the cosmetic was easy. This is painful. And you see, when the Lord starts working in those areas, you realise it's not the sort of stuff that can be done by a little bit of DIY. This is not do-it-yourself. You cannot do it. I cannot do it myself. Only the awesome power of God through his Holy Spirit can change a selfish person into one who is patient with others and kind and bears with others in love. That's what this prayer is about. That Christ would dwell, would abide, would take up residence in our hearts. That he would change us so that people would look at us not just as individuals but as a church family and that they would say, I know who lives there. They are so Jesus. But that takes huge power. That takes the work of the Holy Spirit of God. Verse 16, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. You see, if you want to see how this fits into the whole book, this is a prayer preparing us for chapters 4, 5 and 6. Because in chapters 4, 5 and 6, we will see how we should be living. In our marriages, in our workplace, in our families, simply every day, how we should relate to people. That's really important in the Christian life. Look, I'm not going to go through chapters 4, 5 and 6, you'll be pleased to know. But let me just show you one verse to show you the depth of this change that should come about. Have a flip over to chapter 4, verse 23. Now, look, I, I must have read Ephesians 4 many times over the years, but I've never quite seen the impact of this verse until this week, how big it is. Chapter 4, verse 23. We are to be made new in the attitude of our minds. That is a huge work. Changing the way I think. Changing the way I think about myself. Changing the way I think about others. Changing the way I think about God. Changing the way I think about the universe. Changing the way I think about what's important. Changing the way I think about everything, you see. Renewed in my mind. In the attitude of my mind. That is a huge work that only the Holy Spirit can do. Now remember what this is all about. As I become this, as we become this, 
So together we become the church we ought to be and when we are the church we ought to be, increasingly, so the powers and authorities in the heavenly realms, they are blown away. They are amazed at the manifold wisdom of God. It is that important that we are as we ought to be. Then God is glorified through us, the church, living as we should. It's a wonderful thought, isn't it? And please, be encouraged. We are not in the world of make-believe as we talk about this. We're not in the world of make-believe when we talk about the heavenly realms, the unseen world. That is as real as this stuff, all the stuff around us. Just as real. That's not make-believe. But this is not make-believe thinking, oh, surely God can't do that to us, change us to that extent. This is not make-believe at all. Because, back in chapter 3, the prayer again, chapter 3, verse 16, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power out of his glorious riches. The riches of God are limitless. So he can do this. But this is how Don Carson sums up the goal of this first prayer. And I don't mind telling you, I've relied heavily on this excellent book, A Call to Spiritual Reformation, where Don Carson looks at different prayers of the Apostle Paul and on this one here. This is what he says at the end of this first prayer. The first petition then is a plea for power, power to be holy, power to think, act and talk in ways utterly pleasing to Christ, power to strengthen moral resolve, power to walk in transparent gratitude to God, power to be humble, power to be discerning, power to be obedient and trusting, power to grow in conformity to Jesus Christ. Now can you see how powerful it would be if we all became all that we should be? What a prayer to pray. But there's more. See, there's a second prayer here. And the second prayer is a prayer to enable us to grasp the limitless dimensions of Christ's love. Verse 17, halfway through. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Now that's a very interesting phrase, isn't it? About knowing the love of Christ. Because of course these Christians knew God's love for them. We've already seen they were real Christians. And Paul says it here in this prayer. They were, verse 17, rooted and established in love. And yet Paul prays here that they would grasp even better Christ's love for them. Not just know that Christ loves them intellectually, But look at verse 19, to know this love, that surpasses knowledge. It's beyond intellect, although it's not less than that, it's more than that. For it's in knowing, really knowing the full extent of Christ's love that we reach Christian maturity. Look at the end of verse 19. He prays this, that you, me, we, may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God that we may become all that we should become, that we may become spiritually mature. See, Paul assumes that we cannot be spiritually mature, as spiritually mature as we ought to be, unless we receive power from God to enable us to grasp the limitless dimensions of the love of Christ. Until we've really grasped and known how much Christ loves us, there will always be something deficient in the way we live. Now look, we know this from our own experience, from from everyday life, don't we? 
being brought up in a home of unconditional love gives us such stability and emotional maturity, doesn't it? Sadly, we know it all too painfully when we look at the opposite, when we meet people who've never experienced the love of parents. I have a friend who who worked in in children's orphanages in, in Eastern Europe. It is heartbreaking to hear her speak of these dear children and how they are starved of love. Indeed, that was why she went and worked there. She actually set up her own, her own orphanage because she wanted to show them love. Not just because she wanted to show them love, but because she knows that when they are starved of love, they never mature emotionally. Of course, as you start to show people love, and really they experience that love, so they can grow and become all that they ought to be. And of course you don't need to go to Eastern Europe to discover that. It happens in families that are functional and respectable and seem such good homes. So people tell me of their family backgrounds where they they always had to achieve to be loved. They were loved if they passed the exams, loved if they got the right job, loved if they produced grandchildren, never unconditionally loved, always loved if. I saw it in London a lot. In London, love comes with a price tag. I'll love you if you're young or successful or beautiful or athletic. Now, you see, that affects people, doesn't it? But when you receive unconditional love, it is a wonderful thing and it results in emotional maturity and being a well-adjusted adult. Well, so it is with God's love. When we really know the full extent of God's love, not just know intellectually, but know it in the depth of our being, then we become mature spiritually. And that is what Paul is saying at the end of verse 19, you see. He prays all this, end of verse 19, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. But again, it takes the power of God for us to grasp the limitless dimensions of the love of God. We're going to take communion in a moment. And it's wonderful that we do. And there we see the extent of God's love. God demonstrates his love for us in this, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 5 verse 8. But we need to pray as we come up to take communion that in the power of God, by the power of God, we would know the the extent of that love and that it would melt our hearts. Sonny, I was very helped again by Don Carson on this point where he points out that amazingly we may not, even as Christians, we may not want to know that love. Listen to what he says. It takes nothing less than the power of God to enable us to grasp the love of Christ. Part of our deep me-ism, putting me in the centre, part of our deep me-ism is manifested in such independence that we do not really want to get so close to God that we feel dependent upon him, swamped by his love. See, Carson is saying, hey, this is scary. If we're going to be swamped by the love of God... He says, we want to experience power so that we can be in control. Paul prays for power so that we will be controlled by God himself. Our deep and pathetic self-centeredness is precisely why it takes the power of God to transform us. That's what this prayer is about. But wonderfully, we will be transformed when we grasp and know the limitless dimensions of Christ's love To experience the love of God will take our fellowship and unity to new depths. Fellowship becomes precious, not just an artificial shaking of a hand or going round for coffee. 
Forgiving others becomes natural when we know the love of God. We forgive the inexcusable in others because through the love of God we have had the inexcusable forgiven in us. No, it's never easy, forgiveness, but it is much easier when you've been overwhelmed by the love of God for you when you know how much he has forgiven you to forgive others. When you know the love of God, will you want to treat others well? In fact, it becomes a goal to treat others well because Christ died for them. God loved them enough to send his son to die for them. Well then, if they're people for whom Christ died, I must treat them well. Do you see how this changes us? How it changes our relationships? Verse 19, to know this love that surpasses knowledge will take me to Christian maturity. Changing my speech, my thought, my actions, my relationships, my goals, my values. Changing the way I relate to others. Because when we know this love, quite frankly, when we know the love that surpasses knowledge, our hearts are melted. We can't stay the same. Can you imagine how different we would be if we prayed this prayer and then saw it answered, and surely it will be answered, because this is a prayer God wants us to pray. And you see, this is not just for the lone Christian. This is for us as a church family. Verse 18, this is a prayer that we, together with all the saints, that is, all the Christians around us, would know the extent of Christ's love. John Stott writes this, it needs the whole people of God to understand the whole love of God. But if we did, if we were to incorporate these prayers into our regular praying for ourselves and for this church over the next month, can we do that? Can we say, I'm going to pray this regularly for me and for us from now on, for a time. If we did that and then we saw our Heavenly Father answering this prayer, it would transform us as a church. We would become more and more the people we should become. The community around us would be amazed and this is the big point the powers and authorities in the heavenly realms, all around us, even though we can't see them, but they're just as real, the powers and authorities in the heavenly realms would be wowed by the greatness of God's gospel and indeed by the greatness of God himself if we live this way. And if that seems something like a pipe dream and just too much to really expect to happen, a great ideal but frankly impossible, well then we must pray along with Paul, verse 20. See what he prays? Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Well as we have been thinking about the amazing love of God as we prepare to take bread and wine let's pray this, uh, sing this wonderful